Lamentations chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Shall we pray? And Father, we thank you once again for your word that you've magnified above your name. Lord, for in your word we have the truth of salvation, the truth of you, and everything that we need, Lord, that pertains to life and godliness, God. And we lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways we acknowledge you, knowing and trusting that you will guide our paths, God. And we're so blessed to know that all things work together for good, and that you're for us, and that, God, your plan and your perfect will will be accomplished in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you, and so, Lord, we love you. And we give you this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, was born into a priestly family in the town of Anathoth. When he was young, God called him to be a prophet, and for 40 years, Jeremiah faithfully proclaimed God's message. He warned the southern kingdom of Judah to repent of their many sins, to turn to the Lord in humility, and to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Yet the people refused to hear the words of Jeremiah, and they put him in stocks. They had him arrested illegally, they dropped him in an abandoned cistern, and they had his scrolls of prophecy burned. And as we read in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, describing the people, they have eyes and see not, they have ears and they hear not. Simply they refused to hear the words of Jeremiah, and instead the people listened to the lies of the false prophets who declared that God would defeat the Babylonians and save Jerusalem. But in 586 BC, Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah witnessed the severe judgment of God against the nation of Judah as Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took the people captive. As we read of this account in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 5, For the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity. And then chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. And in verse 18, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandments, Hear now all peoples, and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. 
There is on the site of Golgotha, the place of the skull on Mount Moriah where Jesus was crucified, a cave that is called Jeremiah's Grotto. And from the cave, you can view the city of Jerusalem. Now, tradition states that Jeremiah sat in this cave and wrote the book of Lamentations. And sitting in this cave, overlooking the rubble that was once Jerusalem, he would be there weeping over the consequences that were wrought by the people's sin. You imagine what he saw as he sat there. He was staring at the empty streets of the city that were once crowded by people, staring at the walls that were now destroyed, staring at the rubble of the once magnificent and beautiful temple of God. He was staring at the fire that was and probably still was consuming the city. And he heard the screams of the young and of the old. I think, you know, he probably thought to himself, had the people only listened and obeyed God's will, this tragedy could have been averted. And he sits and he weeps and he cries and he laments. It seems like the people had turned against him. They didn't listen to him for 40 years. And he's sitting there. And then it seemed to Jeremiah that God himself had become his enemy. That even God turned against him. And he writes in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 3, Surely he has turned against me. And then verse 1, I have seen the affliction of the rod of his wrath. And then verse 2, he has led us into darkness and shut out the light. And then verses 6 and 7, he has set me in the dark places of the dead for which there is no escape. He has surrounded me, verse 5, with bitterness and travail. Verse 10, he has torn us like a bear or a lion. And that feeling, if you've seen a bear, you're being dragged away and you're being mauled. You're being mangled. And Jeremiah is saying, he has torn us like a bear or a lion. And then verses 12 and 13, he has bent his bow and made us the target for his arrows. His arrow pierced my heart. Much like what Job said in chapter 6, verse 4 of the book of Job. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And then in verses 15 and 19 in Lamentations, Jeremiah likens all of this to being forced to drink gall and the most bitter of substances, and that would be wormwood. And then in verse 16, he says, he has broken my teeth with gravel stones. And then verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Or as one translation reads, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, when I cry and shout, 
He does not listen to my prayers. And then in verse 44 of the same chapter, you have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. Jeremiah felt that he had lost touch with God. And then Jeremiah says there in chapter 3, verse 20, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. It's like he's saying, I remember all of it, and my soul, it sinks within me. I remember the 40 years. I remember the stocks and the arrest and the cistern and the burning of the scrolls. I remember the messages and when the people refused to listen. As he says himself in his own book, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, who will listen to me? I still remember the Babylonians and the burning and the bodies and the screaming and the terror. I remember it all and my soul sinks within me. Or as one translation said, I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Have you ever sat and wept, overwhelmed? You look around and all you see is misery. You sink to an incredible low, a great loss that knocks the wind out of you, and that wind is gone not just for an hour, but not just for a day or a week or a month, it's years. You have no more strength. All your resources are gone and you're backed into a corner and you've hit rock bottom. And it seems like all have forsaken you and it seems like God is not there and you feel as though he deserted you and you seem totally hopeless. For Jeremiah, his cry of hopelessness was the turning point to hope. For in verse 21, he no longer focused on the situation or on the circumstances. He no longer focused on himself, but now, as we'll see, his focus was on the Lord. And it was in the Lord that he found hope. He went from hopelessness to hope. And if you're like Jeremiah tonight and you are filled with hopelessness, may God just take your heart tonight and your mind tonight and by his spirit, just by the balm of Gilead put new hope within your heart, a new hope within your mind as you find the Lord himself to be your hope. 
Notice what he says there in verse 21. This I recall to my mind. The Bible speaks about the renewing of our minds, a biblical mindset. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul exhorts us to the renewing of our minds. And also in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's Satan's target. That's where he's aiming at, to doubt the word of God and then to doubt the nature and the character of God. And what Paul is saying here is you take every thought captive in regards to who God is. And when Satan says, you've blown it, he doesn't love you anymore, God's turned his back on you, it's as though he's behind a cloud and he's not hearing your prayers, you can say he is faithful and he is just to forgive me of all of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he is my advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he loves me. And he demonstrated it there on that cross 2,000 years ago. And then you watch just those lies of the enemy. I just, you know, what, what can he do against the word of God but challenge it? But you hold fast to the scripture. It's amazing to me how we can think ourselves into hopelessness and into miserable moods. I was talking with my wife the other day, and I said to her, I become so miserable when I think about myself. I truly do. The worst conversation I can have is with me. I mean, I got nothing else to say. And then what I do talk, and I talk back, then we have a bigger problem. I get so miserable thinking about myself. That pity party. Just want to go to some store and buy little, you know, hats and stuff and balloons and throw myself when nobody would come because depressed people are miserable company. But, um, you know, the renewing of the mind, a biblical mindset. Jeremiah says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Like Jeremiah, looking from himself to God, the hopelessness and the depression left. Setting our minds on the Lord. As he said, therefore I have hope. And hope is once again revived. As David writes in Psalm 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? It's like he talks to himself, I guess in a good way. He says, hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. 
When we think of the Lord, we come into a whole new consciousness of victory and hope. He's on the throne. He's in control. He loves me. He's watching over the affairs of my life, and he'll see me through. He knows the number of hairs on my head. All the stars in the sky, he's numbered them all and knows them all by name. You know, go down to the beach, take that handful of sand and you let the grains of sand fall through your hand or his thoughts toward us. As innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. As Jeremiah writes in chapter 26, verse 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. The nature of God brought comfort to the soul of the troubled prophet. I like this quote. In the process of remembering God's attributes, Jeremiah was drawn back into living fellowship and intimate communion with his faithful God. And so what are the attributes of God that Jeremiah recalled to his mind? We see that in verse 22. It's through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. The word mercy there is hesed. It means great love. It means the loyal love of the Lord that leads to mercy. It's his mercy that we are not consumed. And so Jeremiah could look at the people as they're going off to Babylon into captivity, and though they're a defeated people, uh, they were not utterly consumed. God said in his word, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. If it were not for the mercy of God, I would already be dead and I would already be in hell. And he could have consumed us, but he didn't. He could have just left us. He could have saved us and said, okay, let's see how you do now. But he didn't. He gave us of his Holy Spirit, and he calls us to stand in grace and to live in grace and to walk in grace, to be our lives fill with the grace of God. He just continually bestows his favor and his love upon us day by day. And he is under no obligation to sustain us, to keep our lungs going, our minds working, considering the sin that we've sinned against him. And the fact that we're here tonight brings us hope because there's a still a reason and a purpose that he has for us still being alive. And notice what he says, to the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. The word compassion here, do your own word study, this is amazing. The root word meaning female or womb. The idea behind it is the feeling a mother has toward her infant child. God is compassionate toward us as a young mother 
is that tender and kind and compassionate and protective of that little one within her womb. They weren't destroyed. They weren't utterly consumed. There was still hope. And it was his loyal love that would see them through. And it was his compassion. Our God is a compassionate God. They sinned against him. We've sinned against him. We deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his vengeance and the fiery indignation of him. But there at Calvary, Jesus, when he died for us, took all of that and he's extended us grace and mercy. God in all of that was looking for an excuse to be kind and compassionate to his people. There was this story of a, a high school teacher who had a, a pair of unruly young men in the class. And after a series of disciplinary actions as he followed protocol, he finally said, you know what, that's it. We're going to the principal's office and we're gonna go see the principal. And the teacher, the heart sunk because really loved those two young guys and they were just great students. And so he said, at break, that's it, no break for you. We're gonna go down and see the principal's office. The gavel's been just banged on the desk and that's it, we're gonna go. And so sure enough, the kids, oh, you know, we blew it this time, here comes the punishment. Ah. Bell goes off, break time. The cowering heads are down. Teacher says, all right, let's go. We're gonna go see the principal's office and we're gonna go see the principal. So the kids are lagging behind and the teacher's walking. Comes up to this long hallway, this long walk to this door that's open and there's a desk there and the principal's sitting behind the desk and the teacher stops. He says, guys, that there is the principal's office and that there is the principal. Now get back to class. All of the judgment, all of the disciplinary action, the teacher was trying to find a loophole to fulfill what he said would be just. They saw the principal, they saw the principal's office, but he was looking for compassion and mercy because his heart was a heart of love. How can I show these two rebellious boys the fact that there is consequence and that there is punishment, but there is also compassion and there also is love? And God says, the people are going to Babylon, but I'm not going to utterly consume them. They will come back after 70 years. I will plant them again in the land. They will be restored. The temple will be rebuilt. God is just looking for excuses to show us his mercy. He's long-suffering in his judgment. He does not want to judge. That's the last thing that he wants to do. And yet we've given so many reasons for God to hate us. We've used him. He's warned us and we refused. His love has commanded us, yet we've disobeyed. I don't know about you, but I've called him a liar. 
told him I want nothing to do with him. And yet his love for me and his love for you is not based upon who we are. It's based upon who he is. God does not love us because we're good or because we're bad. God's love for us is based upon who he is and his love for us is unchanging. And God will never stop loving us. His love never fails. And his love is continually being poured out upon our lives. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God is a compassionate God. God never fails to be compassionate. His compassions fail not. And you recall that to your mind the next time you're sitting and you're weeping in your cave and you wonder what's going on. You remember, you recall to your mind, God is compassionate and he loves me. And there you will go from hopelessness to hope. We notice what he says there, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. God's supply of grace is fresh and new every morning. His love for us is new every morning. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've had a really difficult evening and I go to bed and that pillow is rock hard and I think, man, my conscience and I just, you know, how can I wake up tomorrow morning? And all of a sudden I wake up the next morning and I got like this feather pillow. The comforter is like made of silk. God gives me some birds chirping right outside. There's a nice fresh breeze and I open the window. The skies are blue and the clouds are white. There's a beautiful mist from the night before that's made everything fresh. That's his love. And that's his mercy. And I don't deserve it. And then just to get out of bed and to be able to walk. We've taken... I. Walking for granted. Seeing for granted. Talking for granted. My wife and I were up last night talking about Helen Keller. You imagine that. The darkness, that, that just the onset of it. You're, you're deaf and you're mute within a moment. How do you pull in information like that? The fact that I'm breathing right now, the fact that I can think, and then I can live in California. I can drive to the beach in Malibu, and I can go in the water and be closer to the shore on my beach blanket, closer to the shore than the guy that's living there, paying who knows how much a month and I got closer access to the beach. And now he's looking at the back of my head, and I'm waving at him, and I'm enjoying his waves. And I'm a happy person there. But if I want to, I can drive up to Santa Barbara. Or if I feel like it, I can drive up to Mammoth. I mean, Mammoth, you talk about Lake George. If you've seen Lake George, wow. Let's just cut over to Yosemite. I mean, you go through that tunnel and you think that tunnel never ends. And you're going and you're going and you're going and all of a sudden there's a light. I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to get there. And all of a sudden, 
You just, I mean, it's just, you can't capture it in a movie. And then there's Half Dome. I always wonder about those early explorers that were just like, let's set up camp. And there's that guy that's like, no, let's keep walking. And the guy, you know, we're going to set up camp, you know, and the guy keeps walking and he's like, you guys won't believe what I just saw. Well, guess what I just found. There's this rock that's like a half a rock and there's these waterfalls. We're going to bed. No, you're not going to bed. You're getting up and look at this beautiful thing and, and the bears and the deer. To be able to see that. And then at night, uh, there's a place up in uh, Morro Bay, a, a Royal Grande. You, you drive it, and it's between the two. And at night, you can pull over. It's not safe, but it's worth it. Because if you get hit there and that's it, the last thing that you saw was just beautiful. <laughs> and the stars up there, the glow, the magnificence, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then when you get in your car in that semi, Okay, last thing that you saw, his handiwork. It's so beautiful. He's able to bring us forth out of even the deepest mess and work that deepest mess into good. And you watch him. You wake up one morning, you're like, Lord, you know the mess. And he just says, give it to me and watch me work. And trust him too. And it's amazing to see him do it. Because great is your faithfulness, as we read there. And God said in context that he would judge the people. And God would also restore them to the land. And he did. You don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 32... Verse 28, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And then verse 37 of the same chapter, behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and my fury and in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and cause them to dwell safely. In verse 41, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And then in verse 44, for I will cause their captivity to return. God is faithful, and God will keep his word. Now for some of us, that's very comforting because he says, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. And if you don't, the wrath of God abides upon you. And he does not want that because he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And after 2,000 years of a carpenter, carpenter building something, and we've all heard it, I wonder what it's like, but it's good to be reminded sometimes. And when he comes back for us and we'll be with him, the promises of God, he will supply our needs. Whatever they may be tonight, he already knows them. 
even before we ask or petition, he knows. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just. And you look at your life and all things work together for good. I was up in Santa Barbara some time back and there's this uh, kind of a place where you wash your hands. And I, I went in and I, it was kind of dark, so my eyes were adjusting from the light to uh, the, the dark area. And I, I walked right over to the sink and I looked up at the wall and there was no mirror. All I saw was this just like sky blue. And it was a tile, like a mosaic, but I couldn't see it. All I saw was this one tile right in front of me. I'm staring at the one tile, washing my hands. I'm thinking, what am I staring at? It's a blue tile. Didn't you know that? Yes, I did. And that's how I talked to myself. But I looked at that blue tile and I washed my hands and I took a step back. And from that little blue tile, I saw a picture form. And I took another step back and I watched another picture form. And I took another step back and I watched another picture form until I saw the full picture. And I've never done needlework. My, um, my grandmother would crochet and you take the yarn and you go through the plastic and then you know you, you find it on the ground, it's face down and it's just this, this mess of yarn. And you're thinking, what have you been spending eight hours doing? You're creating a mess. Don't you know better? And you pick it up and you turn it over and it's just this beautiful, like picture of a house on the hills with a stream and the sun. But looking at the back, you're like, what's going on here? But when you look at it from the right perspective, you see something beautiful. When you take a few steps back, when you see the whole picture form, you see this beautiful mosaic that you didn't see when you were right up close. And one day, He's welcome to do it. It's up to him. I won't demand it of him, but I, sh I sure as to say to the testimony of his grace and of his mercy, he will show us how he took our lives and all of the yarn and all of the tiles and everything that we face and the trials and the temptations and the circumstances and the tears and the loneliness and the hopelessness and the depression and the despair and the rubble that we've made and he'll show us Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good and that he has had his hand in our lives all the way. As the old hymn goes, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. Morning by morning new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine 
with 10,000 beside. You lose everything, but you still have the Lord. You have everything. Notice verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. I have the Lord, and he's all I need. To know that he loves me. To know that he cares for me. That I can cast all my cares upon him, and he cares for me. No matter what it is, He's a heavenly father that listens. He stoops down to listen. When we say, Abba, Daddy, may I have your attention, please. But it's interesting in life. Sometimes God removes everything just to bring us to himself, just to shut us up to himself. And you can watch everything in your life disintegrate and fade away. And I believe it's intentional. So that when you do hit rock bottom and you're in that corner, you don't turn to anything else or anyone else but him. It's okay if you do it. But I'm just going to say it. People always say to me, you know, just hang in there. It's nice. Doesn't do much for me. Just hang in there. And I think about that throughout my day. Just hang in there. What does that mean? What am I hanging on to? Or what am I hanging on? I don't quite understand this. Somebody said, hang in there. And I said, no. I'm going to trust and believe in and put my faith in the one who hung in there for me. He hung in there on that cross 2,000 years ago. You imagine the darkness and the earthquake and the people. You put yourself at that scene, the disciples, the religious leaders, the strangers, the passerbys. What were they hoping to see? What did they see? Just to see him bloody, Nobody could recognize him. His visage was so marred that not even Mary could say, hey, that's my son. And you look at him, and you sit there at the cross, and you go with him to that empty tomb. He's all you need. He's your portion. He's everything. He's everything. What's the old saying? You can take the whole world, but give me Jesus. And I think when, you know, you come to the Lord, he tests us. And in a sense, he asks, why did you come to me? Was it for the food? Did you want a nice marriage supper? Was it for the streets of gold? Is that why you came? Was it for the mansion? Or was it for me? Why did you want me? Is it because of my love, my grace, or my mercy, my forgiveness, or do you just want me? I always, when I talk to youth, it's fun. I say, you know, I got married because I was tired of doing laundry. 
And they look at me cross-eyed. Now I got married because simply I wanted to say, woman, here's the ring. I'll see you in 60 years on our retirement cruise. I'll see you at midnight and have some chocolate with you. I'll see you then. Oh, and by the way, I want my laundry done. But isn't that often how we treat him? I'll see you when I get up to heaven. It'll be nice. If you want to knock on the door of my mansion, that's fine. Where's the new body? It's up to you. But Lord, while I'm here, I thank you for everything you've done for me. But just leave me alone for right now because you know what? I got things to do. And then slowly he takes that heart and he tests it and he tries it and he says, okay, why did you really come to me? Was it for me? And the laundry piles up and she stares at you and says, now what? Is it for me? Why do you love me? There's a whole lot more people out in this world. Why did you come to me? Because it's you. You're the one. When I see you, I see life. When I see you, I see love. When I see you, I see no other one I want to be with. It's you, every part of you. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, it's you. We look at the Lord and we say, why do we come to him? And he looks at us and I think he says, why did you come to me? To use me, to get what you wanted or is it for me? Because Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you may know me. And the Christian life is about knowing God. The volume of the book speaks of him. I don't have, well, I might, but you know what's amazing with Moses? You look at Moses, and at the very end of all of those years in the wilderness, and just all of the manna, and all of the water out of the rock, and all of the quail, the Ten Commandments, and you know, you have the blueprints for the tabernacle. At the end of the day, Moses, the cry of his heart is, I just want to know you. Would you just show me your glory? I just want to see you and your magnificence and splendor. And God says, you want to see me? Yes, I do. Then hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and you'll see my afterglow. God wants to reveal himself to you tonight. But you can say, I've blown it. You don't understand. I've acted as Judah. I've heard the call of the prophets. I've heard the call of the Spirit. It says, repent. He says, repent. But I haven't. I've gone my own way. But tonight, you know, I want to know this God of love and this God of mercy and this God of compassion and kindness. But I've messed up my life. Will he forgive me? Yes, he will. And he'll restore you back into fellowship with him through his Son. You can be born again and know God. But the cry of his heart, Moses, just saying, I want to know him. And like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, just to leave here tonight and say, God, I know you're up there. I want to know you in a way I've never known you before. Would you please, by your spirit, reveal yourself to me? in a deeper, richer, more beautiful way, and he's faithful to do it. You are my portion, O Lord, and I have said I will keep your words. And then Psalm 73, verse 26, one of my favorites, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forevermore. Jehovah is my dearest treasure, therefore I hope in him. And he says there in verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This gentleman wrote, there are times when the only thing a sufferer can do is wait for God, but waiting is good because God is worth waiting for. And in those times of waiting, we can seek him, the greatest treasure. In verse 26, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly. It's interesting there, the wait quietly, it speaks of a resignation, a patiently quiet under affliction waiting, resting in and submitting to the will and the working of God. Jeremiah is saying, God, you know what you're doing. I'm gonna quiet myself and wait. It was John Bunyan who wrote in the Pilgrim's Progress, and patience was willing to wait. It's a good place to be, to not be anxious, but to say, Lord, I resign to this here, and I'll trust you to work it out, and I'll trust that you will see it through to your end. I'll trust in your salvation. And the word there, it speaks of rescue, help, deliverance, and victory, and that is from the self-existent, eternal Lord. We're to rest in the Lord. That's a good word tonight, isn't it? Rest in Him and wait patiently for Him. And truly my soul waits upon God From him comes my salvation. And the salvation again, the sense of rescue and help and deliverance. During the 1950s, there was a scientist with the John Hopkins University whose name was Kurt Richter, and he conducted an experiment on rats. Dr. Richter placed rats into a bucket of water and timed their ability to swim. Rats, who are apparently known for their strong swimming skills, lasted an average of 15 minutes before drowning. And so he would take these jars, fill them halfway with water, and put the rats in and study just to see how long they would swim and survive until they drowned. And after 15 minutes, The rat lost hope and drowned. And in the drowning, it died. In a second experiment, Richter rescued the rats when he saw them begin to stop swimming and sink. So again, he would take the jar, fill it half with water, put this new uh, few rats in there, and around maybe probably 14 minutes and 30 seconds, he saw the rats flailing and about to go down. He would put his hand in and take that rat and he would begin to dry it off, place that rat somewhere. And to that rat, it was rescued. It had a salvation experience, they say. 
And he would take them out, give them a chance to dry off, and then give them a short period of rest. And so that rat would be there and rest. And then, just as they were dry, and just as they were rested, Richter put them back into the water. And however, this time Richter identified a substantial behavioral change the rescued rats swam, swam more than 15 minutes. And further study goes on to say that these rats, they call it a salvific experience, that hope was infused into the lives of these rats. And the first batch lasted but 15 minutes. And the second batch, once they were rescued, and once they were taken and dried off, and once he put them back into those jars, they swam under hope for 60 hours. And that is the power of hope. Matthew Henry wrote, but for hope, the heart would break. You sit alone. You run out of tears. You don't know what's next. Recall to your mind his mercies, his compassion, and his great faithfulness. You don't know what's coming and nor do I, but he does. And he's watching over us. And he's in control of the circumstances of our lives. And he will, because he is faithful, he will take care of us. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again in first, excuse me, second Corinthians chapter one, and we'll end with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you're as Judah tonight, and God's saying just one more, and you've exhausted it, and you're gonna go into captivity, it's a chance to repent and to receive his love and his mercy and his forgiveness tonight to begin a new walk with him. But to my own heart, by the Spirit of God, we sit and we weep. But by the Spirit of God, may he so strengthen our hearts and set our minds on God 
that we would stand and walk as Jeremiah did, who did not quit for 40 years, but was faithful to God and to the call of God upon his life for one day to stand before the God of all comfort and to look into his very eyes, the very eyes that also wept over Jerusalem because they did not know the day of his coming, but to look into his eyes and to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. May the Lord take the hopelessness from your heart tonight and bring you hope. May he revive hope tonight in your heart as you find your hope in him. Shall we pray? And Father, we thank you so much for your love. And Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, God. You're so good to us, God. We deserve, well, you know, Lord, and as you tell us in your word, And so, Lord, we look to you, and uh, we ask that you would uh, have your way, Lord, in our hearts. And for us, God, we resign to your will, to your good and your perfect and your beautiful will, and that, Lord, our, our hearts and our minds would be renewed by your Spirit through the washing of the water of your word, that you would cleanse us, Lord, restore us. And that, Father, is Jeremiah, a man of courage and bravery and strength, a man who Though he was weary walking with man, Lord, you strengthen his heart to run with the horses. And Lord, you know the days ahead for us here on planet Earth. And Lord, our hearts can grow faint and hopeless as we look around us and see. And so, God, we ask you would take our eyes off of everything that's happening here. And Lord, that we may see from your perspective all that you're doing and you find hope. And Lord, you as our portion. And God, that these days that we have ahead, Lord, strengthen us by your spirit, by your grace, Lord. Pour out your grace upon us, and by your spirit, Lord, strengthen us and give us your wisdom and your love, God, that this world so desperately needs. And Lord, we love you, and Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.